Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of What Next? Today we have a very interesting guest, a longtime colleague and friend, Josh Bernoff. For those of you who have been around in the industry, you will probably know him as a very senior leader at a small little company called Forrester, where he worked for over 20 years. And then he went on to basically become a best-selling author. He has written eight business books. Uh, One of his books was Groundswell, which is about social media, before social media and other things were cool, written with Charlene Lee. And his most recent book is Build a Better Business Book. Josh comes to us from Portland, Maine, in the United States. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Rashad. It's really great to be on here. Well, it's great to be continuously connected, and obviously, we've talked recently. Um, and Josh, tell us a little bit about your career, both how you got to Forrester, what made you leave Forrester, and what you've recently done, because as you say, you help authors succeed these days. Yeah, so um, I actually was trained as a mathematician. Uh, I was in a PhD program at MIT, and I realized eventually, oh my gosh, if I am really successful at this, there are 11 people in the world who will understand what I'm working on. So I said, I need to have more of an impact than that. And uh, after I left that, I spent 14 years in startup companies in the Boston area, um, and then joined Forrester Research. And really, my time at Forrester Research as an analyst is what shaped me into the thinker that I am today, because they have a very rigorous way of doing research and analyzing what's going to happen in the future and advising uh, companies on that basis. About 10 years into my time at Forrester, I tried to quit because I wanted to write a book. And to his credit, uh, George Colony, the CEO of Forrester, said, well, we can hold on to you. Why don't you just write a book for us? And I was like, oh, this is great. I'll get paid a salary and I'll get to write the book. <laughs> so so I did that. That was the book Groundswell that I wrote with Charlene Lee, a book on social media, really the first book about practical uses of social media for corporations. Um, was really successful, sold 150,000 copies. Both Charlene and I were able to build our careers on that. And I, I spent the next 10 years or so at Forrester helping other people, including helping people to publish books and writing a few other books there. Uh, and then in the eight years since then, I left in 2015, I said, all right, I want to focus full-time on books because writing and books and ideas is what gets me excited. So since then, I've worked on about 50 book projects, writing, ghostwriting, editing, um, coaching, helping people with ideas, and in general, sort of midwifing books on the most powerful ideas I can find into the world. Um, And what can I say? That's what I love doing. uh, And I hope that I continue to do it until I, you know, can't speak or think anymore. Absolutely. Well, one of the key things, as I mentioned to you, is that as someone who has written a book, when I read your book, or you were good enough to send me an advanced copy of your book, I said, I wish I had read this book before I started my little adventure. It would have saved me a lot of heartache and trouble. Uh, so your, your book actually is a book for anybody who is interested in writing 
um, especially nonfiction business, or even wants to know what goes into writing a book, uh, you don't even have to be a writer. It's a great book to read. Yeah. So this is, you're talking about Build a Better Business book, my most recent book. And that book exists because I got sick of answering the same questions over and over and over again. Because, you know, when you do a lot of book projects, you see people do all sorts of things. And of course, the authors are like doing this for the first time, mostly. And as you say, they, they're like, uh, why don't I start by writing? I'm like, no, that's a terrible idea. Start by thinking, start by planning, start by researching. And then when the writing comes along, you'll have what you need to be able to do that. You know, uh, do I have to get published by a traditional publisher? Actually, no, you don't. But, but these are all the kinds of questions people have. And, uh, that book has got 24 chapters, each of which has got stories about people like you, Rashad, who went through actual uh, authoring and then what to do about covers, about planning, about research, about working with co-authors, what tools to use, uh, you know, how to get blurbs, everything that I could think of. I tried to put that all down in one place. No, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, and as I said, it's, a, it's an adventuresome book, even for those who don't want to write a business book or even thinking about writing one. A lot of people think they have a book in them. It's worth reading. But, you know, as someone who has written books like you and myself, I'm writing my second book, it's a topic that makes us feel maybe old school in three ways. And I'd like you to talk broadly about, you know, your, your three provocations, perspectives, points of view. But broadly, you know, one is who the hell cares about books? Because we're now living in a world of TikTok and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. So we seem to be like old, you know, washed up people writing, you know, in uh, the artifacts and parchments and the stone tablets of another age, which is number one. Number two is who the hell cares about writers when you've got GPT-4 and Clore 2 and things like that. And in a world of AI, what the hell does that mean? And the third is we just come through both a writer's strike where they actually built some rules on AI um, or had some in there. And at the very same stage last week, as you saw, a bunch of writers sued OpenAI and others, including you know um, George Martin of uh, Games of Thrones and other fame, saying, you can't use our content. So oddly, even though... We seem to be washed up vestiges of the past. The stuff that you are thinking and writing about, AI, IP, content, development, distribution, and legal seems to be in the news. So that's the reason you're here, which is like, what the hell's going on? So, okay. Josh, tell us. Damn, you're depressing. <laughs> Books matter. They still matter. People read them. They act on them. Um, and, you know, that's not just fiction. Uh, nonfiction books are how big ideas get into the world. And, yes, people make videos and they make podcasts and they, they write substacks and they do all of these other things. But there is nothing like the deep, long dive that it takes to actually produce the level of content you need to put in to have in a book. And that's why I'm still excited about it and have been for decades is because that's still relevant. 
So you you so based on that, you know, your first point is something about AI book writing and other things. I'm all the time talking to people about will AI replace writers, and the answer to that is AI will replace hack writers <laughs> because if you produce hack level writing, AI can do as good a job as you can, um, and that means that we're left with writers who have wit. So what is wit? It's humor. It's the unusual way of looking at things. It's the surprises. It's the things that only the human brain can create. And if you read the output of chat GPT or any of these systems, they are bland and dull and boring. And it's interesting, even though it is difficult for a machine to be able to tell them from what humans create, anyone who's actually a reader paying attention can be like, oh, well, that's sort of even and dull and boring. That must be something an AI wrote. So as long as people are reading for the purpose of communing with somebody else's intelligence, which is what it is, um, there is a role for real writers. These people who produce generic content, yeah, we don't need them. I mean, the the first things that AI got used for was to take financial results and make articles out of them. And you know, that's fine because that's so formulaic. Why not? But I don't think that the next groundbreaking business book is going to get written by AI because it can't think beyond the limits of what it has already understood. I agree with you, but I'm also going to, put forth some people who may disagree with us. So I agree with you for a couple of reasons. One is, as I am writing my second book, one of my chapters, it's it, the book tentatively is titled, but as you know, it goes through all kinds of research and stuff like that, is titled Rethinking Work. Uh, and one of the chapters is on AI and the future of work. And I decided to unleash both Clore 2 and GPT-4 in answering the questions that I was writing about. And I pulled out the GPT-4 stuff, and and then I wrote my own. And I write my own books, but I have a book coach, like you're someone's book coach, like I have a book coach. And I said, okay, I'm sending you twice as many words as I've sent for this chapter. Half of these are GPT-4, and half of these are me. And he basically came back and he said, I can tell each one that's GPT-4 and it sucks. And I was using GPT-4 and Clore 2, so not even GPT-3.05, the latest, right, and greatest, optimized for, like, perfect queries and everything else and prompts. Uh, So I completely agree. But what people say, look, these things are improving better and better. They're starting to feed on our voice. They're starting to feed on our content. Won't they eventually get that wit? So... I want to point something out before I even get to that. Um, I recently uh, surveyed a number of very successful business authors about how they use AI. And they are very creative in the way that they are using it. They are using it to punch holes in their arguments. They are using it to uh, assemble transcripts. Um uh, I'll mention here Alexandra Samuel wrote wrote uh, um, a, a book and is now working on another, and she actually wrote a piece about all the different ways that she uses this. The question is, 
uh, can they get smart enough to replace real writers? And I have yet to see anything that I would classify as creativity. Um, the, the, the first problem of course, is the problem of accuracy. And that's a serious issue. These hallucinations the the, um, according to chat GPT, I graduated from Harvard university with a, a degree in classics, which is of course completely false. <laughs> I never even went to Harvard university. Um, so that's a serious challenge. And I'm actually hopeful that, that that problem will become less of an issue. But the question of whether you can create prose that reflects a, an intelligence communicating with the reader, I'm not ready to, to believe that that's coming because you can't just hoover up a whole bunch of other texts that's already been written and spit it back out again and have it appear to be the original work of an actual intelligence. I would, I would agree with you. I am currently simultaneously reading four of the six Booker Prize shortlist books. So two of them are on Ireland, which I haven't got. The other four are on different topics. One is called The Other Side of Eden. One is about identity from a Jamaican perspective. One is about a young Indian girls growing up playing squash in the UK. And all of them are so unique that I can't ever, ever see a machine do them. They're about identity and story and conflict and you know uncertainty and imagination. And if that Indian girl, right, said to chat GPT, find the inconsistencies and problems and errors in what I wrote, that probably would help. Right. But it doesn't understand what it feels like to grow up in India and be a squash champion. So, yes, exactly. So that's, exactly. that's the challenge. Yes. Yeah. I, th I think the entire idea is, you know, it's the question simply is like machines compute and people feel. And it's interesting. That's fascinating because is writing about feeling or is it about words? Right. And uh, yeah, you can get better and better at words, uh, but not feeling. Exactly. And in fact, we had a previous guest. Um, who's actually a leading AI practitioner at Cambridge University, who basically talked about as AI progressed, the human touch, the human element, and human craft are going to be more important. And so I truly believe the future very much is to your point, which is the way a lot of authors and a lot of people use it, is AI plus HI. So we use AI as a tool, whatever now they call it, in a co-pilot, sidekick, right? Executive assistant, enabler. But HI is human-inspired, so AI plus HI. I, I'll tell you something that I find interesting. Okay, so I work with all sorts of authors, and they're all creative in their own ways. And some authors are creative, have powerful ideas, and produce extremely well-organized and, and well-written prose. Um, and others are extremely creative and produce poorly organized, disastrously written prose. <laughs> And as an editor, I go in and I'm like, okay, what is this person really trying to say and how can I help them say it? But I don't have to say, be original, be creative, tell your own story. What I need to say is, no, that's not the way a paragraph works. Um, I think replacing the writer may not be that easy, but replacing me, the editor, might might be a little easier right? Because if I look at what I do, I'm like, okay, half of what I do, believe it or not, is to add paragraph and sentence breaks 
and correct passive voice. That just seems to be the problem that everybody has. Could a machine do that? Probably it could. <laughs> so, so I may become obsolete, even if the writers do not. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So I think, Josh, you won't because I think even before you had your 20 years of Forrester training, you happen to have points of view. And points of view, perspectives, provocations, and plans of action are not what machines tend to have. Uh, I'm, I can't resist telling a story here. In my first year at Forrester, I, there were only 65 people there. And there were, I was had all, surrounded by all these brilliant people. Um, and I, I had had a couple of reports that really went badly. Um, I'd been there for about six months. And it's getting to the end of the year, and they're announcing the end of the year awards in a big meeting. And I'm sitting there feeling sorry for myself, like, oh, gosh, these people are so brilliant. I wish I could be part of this. I'm so sorry that I'm failing out of this. Ugh, what's wrong with me? And then they announced the Creativity Award, and they gave it to me. <laughs> and I was like, what? What? You think I'm creative? Really? Uh, okay. So, so the interesting thing that happened at that point was I just thought to myself, well, if you think creativity is good and you think I'm good at it, then damn it, I'm going to be that way. And yes, I wasn't different after than I was before. It was more a question. I gave myself permission to call it creativity. And that's got to be what's inside every individual. But that sort of wacky point of view thing that you're talking about. I've always been a smart ass, but I just haven't always been in a position to trust the fact that other people might believe in that. Got it. No, I think that makes absolutely. And I think this whole idea of having stories to tell, having unique voices, having emotion and feeling, and remembering that people choose with their hearts and then they use numbers to justify mm, what they just did. That's true. You know, is 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 a is 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 a big, big thought, I think, as we move forward. So Given that, given that AI is not going to potentially replace good writers, it might replace editors, it will obviously replace hack writers. But today, and I think this is to your second point, is one of the big things today is how do you know whether it's a book by a real writer or a hack writer because, or by AI, because apparently Amazon is now filled with AI-written books going under potentially the similar names or same-sounding names to well-written authors. Yeah, yeah. there was a great article about fake travel books. Um, I, and, and, hey, Amazon just recently passed a new rule that self-published authors can put no more than three books a day up. Really? Self-published <laughs> authors can put no more than three books a day up. Yes, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that'll solve the problem. We can only have three books a day of crap instead instead of a dozen. So I just wrote two, 300 books last month. How many did you write? <laughs> <laughs> because apparently if I write uh, three books a day, that's 100 books for the month. Yes. Well, this is my whole point is that instead of Amazon being totally overrun with crap, now it's only mostly overrun with crap. And – 
the interesting thing about this, this is this is um, what Cory Doctorow go, calls the inshitification of these these various platforms, where the platforms first they serve readers, then they serve authors, and then eventually they they serve themselves, and as a result, you can't tell the difference between what's good and what's crap, and it may create an opportunity. I'm hoping it will create an opportunity for new sources of uh, books and insights and ideas that are uh, that you can trust more than Amazon, which is just basically everything, including a whole bunch of AI generated crap. Well, it, it is, and that's again where it comes down to people, because I'm sure you've been asked this. I've been asked more and more about what's worthwhile to read because people don't trust the machines anymore. Mm, that's exactly right. Well, let's just say that um, I'm working on solving that problem, and that's all I can tell you. All right. Okay. <laughs> so it'll either be a new piece of technology, a new company, or maybe a new book so or an article. But Just just okay, watch we, this space. We will, we will watch this space. You know, yes. hopefully ah, – who the hell knows? It might be a TikTok video. But <laughs> – uh, but but it could be, you know, we could be writing sort of there. But can you speak a little bit, like, for instance, in the same space um, about what your take is on what the writers may or may not have achieved? Because they did get some clauses into the AI thing, uh, you know, as they're writing. Like, one of them is that if any material is given to them, it's, it has to be very clear that, whatever AI has been used in the source material to them. And then the second is as they build on anything, uh, they are both sort of their stuff cannot be used by, you know, AI machines, et cetera. But in an odd way, they've actually managed, and I was reading an article today in the Financial Times, which is all these big people from Sam Altman to Sundar Pichai to, you know, others are trying to do some top-down regulation. And I'm always very worried when incumbents go to government and say, regulate us. It sounds damned fishy to me, okay? Uh, and But bottom-up, which is like, why don't you give the tools and the technology and the power to the individual versus to the company? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, wow, what a convoluted set of questions there. But right. let's, let's unwrap some of sure. that. First of all... Um, the 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 writers and the producers that employ them are in a an asymmetric relationship because there are way more writers than there are jobs, um, and that that imbalance the that's the reason there's a union is to try and address that imbalance and they did the best that they could about that, but in the end, um, what they have done is to basically ensure that there will be writers on every production. That doesn't say anything about how much work the writers are doing and how much control they get. Um, and just like CGI tools now are a huge part of every visual medium, I think uh, AI tools are going to be a huge part of all writing. Um, now, the other question is, it relates to the fuel that, that AI uses. Um, and... Um, it's interesting. I reversed my position on this, but there's a reason. Uh, my my position was that what these um, AI companies had done was basically legal, which was to scrape the internet and learn from it, including books. Um, but 
what's come out recently, and it was in an article in the Atlantic, is that there was a specific corpus of content called Books 3 that had 180,000 pirated books in it, and that that's what they used to train it. So that, to me, I was like, okay, that's over the line. Let's create a big lump of pirated content and train our books on the big lump of pirated content in it. Now, I don't really think you can get away with that. Uh, but in terms of the sort of the flow of history, it's pretty much inevitable now that any content is going to become fuel for the AIs. And the 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 rules or regulations about blocking that are going to be very difficult to enforce. Um, what happens when a an AI uh, scrapes an audio recording of a book and then uses that? You know what happens when uh, you know there's a there's excerpts published and it, and it uses that. It's it's not really going to be very easy to just to put guardrails around what content can and can't be read. Um, and yeah, if you, if you make up a huge lump of pirated content and, and train it on that, that's probably can be blocked, but that's, that's not really the root of the issue. So one of the perspectives that you have on this second point, before we move to the third point, is that in a world where, you know, there's this massive sort of entitification of the web which is a very famous piece by Cory Doctorow, which we'll also include in the notes. It's an amazing piece that, in effect, people are going to have to find places that they can go to, you know, like author sites where authors offer the book, curated sites, you know, where people are basically curating versus these huge sites that have lots and lots of crap that they can ship to you within an hour. Yeah. Well, we have a failure of the middlemen here. Um, you know, Amazon will get you this stuff as cheaply as possible, but writers, authors want to connect with readers. So let me ask you this, Rashad. Uh, how, of all of the people who've bought and read your book, how many of them do you know their names and their email addresses? So these days, I know a little bit more because of my Substack writing, mm -hmm. right? And that's the reason I started my Substack. Mm. So now I know a few thousand, but prior to which I did not know anybody. Right. And that's that. Look at the dynamic that you just described, which is right. an author reaching out to their readers to have a direct relationship. Um, and that's because Amazon is not there to help you as an author. They are not really there to help the reader. They're just there to help themselves. And so this direct author-to-reader relationship is definitely going to be coming. And and even though Substack is a middleman, it is a at least at now a sort of honest middleman in that you do it, get It to, is an honest middleman in that we get to – we can move our content and our list with us. Right. Yes, that's the point is that that list goes. Um, and this is why, you know, all this these TikTok – based authors and so on. This is why this is all happening is because creators, creative people want to have a direct relationship with their fan bases. Um, and it, it, interestingly, this is the smaller your fan base, the more important this is, right? If you're, if you're uh, Taylor Swift, 
you're succeeding because millions and millions of people who you have no idea who they are want to know you. But if you're like me, all right, uh, there, there are only a few thousand authors in the world who probably want to know what I'm doing, but I want to know them and they want to know me. So yes. the middleman does not serve me very well. And that situation that I'm in, if you have, if you're reaching out to 10,000 marketers or 5,000 people who, who do skateboarding or whatever, that's, that relationship is not being helped by the middleman. And I think that is also true, by the way, because much of our audience, while they're all over the place in all kinds of professions, uh, we have more marketers than we have aspiring authors. And marketers are struggling with exactly the same issue, which is how do they get to know their customers, consumers, and people and have first-party data on them versus renting them at higher and higher prices from the platform. Fascinating. Well, I also wonder about people in your uh, former profession, right? Advertising people. Um, I I don't know. Is it, it seems to me that advertising is full of really creative people because they're trying to make an impression on a very jaded audience, and there no, there are a hundred ways to do that, but all of them are require creativity, and yet. How much of this copy in the future is going to be written by AIs? They're, they're, there's not a copywriters union to do what the uh, what the writers union did with the uh, the neg- negotiation with the producers. Well, I think that is takes us to the third point, and it's one of the reasons I was so excited about having you because having you on this podcast, in addition to the fact that you've worked with startups, you've been at Forrester, you're a successful entrepreneur. You know, personally, it was like, okay, I get to talk to somebody who I admire and who helps write books and I write books and that would be great. But most of the audience doesn't do that. But a lot of your points are very relevant to the marketing world, but it's also very relevant to the creative world because creative can be everything from, you know, creative is very, very broad. Uh, Strategists can be creative, but creatives obviously also include people who create advertising messages, communication, content. Uh, And today in a world of, you know, where ChatGPT and DALI 2 are now connected. So you can have a prompt from ChatGPT going into DALI 2, creating stuff when you have runway ML that allows you to create video, putting in some words. Um, I subscribe to something called Ben's Bytes, and every two or three days there's a new agency in the box that will create everything for you. Uh, So it becomes, you know, an existential both either crisis or not. And one way of looking at it is this is coming after everybody's job. The other is AI plus HI will beat someone who is just HI or just AI. But, you know, is this the next generation of Photoshop, right? Or is this something more existential? And you have some thoughts about generational shifts yeah. and a whole bunch of things. Yeah, it's interesting that um, one of the most interesting things that happened to me in my career was working with Charlene Lee on that book about social media. I had to get into and learn about social media, even though I was in my, my late forties. And at that time, people, the people in social media were college students. Um, and thank God I did that because it kept me relevant and connected and interested. Um, now that I'm in my sixties, I have to learn about this AI stuff for the same reason. And I worry about people who want to do the same things the same way they used to do them because that is not viable. Now, if you, 
if you go back and look at the, uh, you know, there was, there was a plot in Mad Men about the computer comes in and everybody's scared to death. And and now it, we know, imagine for yourself a person working in advertising who didn't use a computer. <laughs> it's, it's absurd, right? We have to use it right. to communicate with each other. We have to use it to collaborate. We have to use it to create things. And we also have to use it use it and everything that it enables to connect with people. And AI is, is that the next generation of that. Um, it is, if you don't understand how to use it and how to work with it, then you might as well retire right now. Yes. Yes. You know, what I have basically written about this is I believe it's a three-step process. One is regardless of how old or young you are or how seasoned or unseasoned one is, one has to embrace these new technologies by learning, utilizing them, right? By basically saying, you're going to be retired, it doesn't matter, it isn't going to affect you. I think every single job in America or in the world is going to change because of this. So one, you have to embrace and learn it. The second is you have to adapt your organization and ways of working because this is also going to change things. Just like, you know, you may have to do less of certain things and more of certain things. For instance, you will have to hone your skills that the machine can replace you on, right? And hone other skills that you can do the third part, which is you embrace, you adapt, and you complement, which is how do you complement the one plus one equals to three. But unless you embrace these new things, it won't work. And there are these generational shifts coming so fast. And in fact, I, you know, one of my basic beliefs is the reason why people are struggling with the future of work is because management doesn't know how to manage people who are building, creating, and making, they only know how to control and monitor and delegate. And that generation is over. This is not a talent problem. This is a management problem. Hmm. Well, the, the ch- this is, it's interesting. You mentioned this change about what we're managing, which is a slow change that people are behind. And this, the shifts with AI and AI tools is a rapid discontinuous change. Um, and I feel like this is all coming together to create a world in which uh, the the humans in the workplace don't have anywhere near the same job that they used to. The individual contributors won't, neither will the managers, neither will the leaders, neither will the people who create, the people who, who uh, measure the financials. All of that is about to shift. So I had a... Uh, phrase that I adopted when I was at Forrester that was pretty successful. I call it be paranoid early because if you are paranoid at the end of a creation process, it doesn't do anything except make you crazy. But if in the beginning, if you're paranoid at the beginning, you can actually take action and do something to deal with whatever you're afraid of. And I urge everybody in this creation space, everybody in work now to be paranoid right now about AI, because if that motivates you to learn uh, what th- your the next iteration of your career is, awesome. If you're like, oh, I'll sit around and see what happens, then you're screwed. <laughs> I would say that if you are in a company and you are in a creative or marketing role, you want to be talking to your boss about how you're going to use AI to be successful. And to the extent that people are open to that, you're probably in the right place because they're learning and adapting. If you're told to shut up and just do your job, it's time to start looking 
and this is a really good time to be looking too. So, um, I, I just feel like this is, uh, more than anything else, an indication of, of how progressive a company is and, and whether there's a future there. Got it. That I believe is absolutely right, which is you align with the force, you get washed away, which I think makes a lot of sense. We have heard uh, from Josh Bernoff, who has left us with a lot of intriguing next steps and thoughts, uh, starting with the fact that books will matter. Books will continue to matter. The way they may be created and distributed might change, but that's the way ideas get first thought about. Second is we're moving in an age where AI will not necessarily replace writers. It may replace hack writers, but it will be an enabler and a sidekick to writing, to creating, and storytelling that's even better. But it requires us to embrace and understand the technology and be paranoid early. And every job will change, and every job has creative in it, whether you're a writer, a strategist, an accountant, don't want to be too creative as an accountant, but usually you want to be creative. <laughs> but the reality of it really is we're living in a world which actually is going to be better and better as long as we're willing to change and adapt. And in order to do that, we need to basically combine AI plus HI and uh, surge on to the future. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Rashad. What next? a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.